Well, good morning. Why do you do what you do? You know, motivation is described as the reason people to choose to act in a, in a particular way. And our actions are often influenced by incentives, aren't they? For example, um, an employer will try to incentivize um, an employee if they reach certain benchmarks in sales production. Or uh, perhaps a child can be motivated to eat their vegetables uh, if they have the promise of dessert. Or we motivate ourselves with the promise of a, of a new outfit or a special trip or something like that if we lose a certain number of pounds. Motivation is the reason people choose to act in a particular way. And while we all make similar choices, like getting married, perhaps, or moving to a new city, or changing jobs, or choosing a particular school, our motivations for doing so can be vastly different. And not all of our reasons are good, and not all of our reasons are pure, and not all of our reasons are morally valid. Can you think of some times when people have done something good for the wrong reasons I can. I mean, I can think of times when, when I've done that. And the reason that happens is because our motives are inevitably mixed and tainted by our pride and by our greed, our desire for attention or praise, our need to be loved and accepted. So, for example, we can be kind because we receive certain things from people when we're kind to them. Or we can put others first because of the boost to our reputation. I mean, that's what a good Christian's supposed to do. We can be generous because we want others to see us as generous. Now, of course, as human beings, most of us need to learn to be taught to be kind or to share uh, when we're kids because it doesn't come naturally to most of us. And the Bible says something about that. In the book of Jeremiah, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I think that part of what that means is that we can have a hard time understanding or even identifying our motives sometimes. For example, people talk about, you know, networking, about how you need to build connections in your job or your vocation, or your social networks. It's, and we all tend to do that. But it's very easy to fall into a pattern where you put extra time into people who can do something for you and put little time or ignore people who can't do something for you. And that can bleed over into our lives and how we interact with people, not only at the office, but at school or at the gym or even at church, even in our relationship with God. There are times when we clearly know our motives, but there are times when it's much harder to determine why we do what we do. Isn't that true? What's your motivation for following Jesus? Why do you serve God. Some people decide to follow Jesus because they want to please their parents or their spouse, maybe because that's how they were raised. Some people go to church because their boss does and it's helpful for their career. Some people choose to do this because it's sort of fire insurance policy, you know, just in case it's true, I'm going to cover my bases. Hopefully your motivation is purer than that, more sincere than that. But why do you serve God? Why do you follow Jesus? Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts, which we began several weeks ago. And today we're going to see two people who choose to follow Jesus for two very different reasons. 
And we're going to see how God responded to their differing motivations. Two people, two independent but related stories, very similar in some ways, but other ways very different. The first story features a man named Simon. The second, an Ethiopian government official who is a eunuch. And it's interesting that both stories are fulfilling Jesus' last words, which are recorded in the first chapter of Acts, verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this begins to happen. Jesus' words are beginning to happen here in Acts chapter 8. The first few verses tell us what? That Stephen's been stoned, and after Stephen's been stoned, persecution breaks out, and believers are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And it says in verse 4 that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So they're being persecuted for the faith. The wise thing to do would be to shut up, to kind of play it careful, to really watch what you say. But they're so, they're so filled with the Holy Spirit. They're so excited. They're so in love with Jesus that they just can't be quiet. And Philip is one of those evangelists. And it says he goes specifically to Samaria. Now, Samaria, of course was an area that a good Jew would have avoided like the plague. Why? Because Samaritans were the descendants of, of the northern kingdom of Israel who'd been overrun by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took them off into exile. And instead of being distinct in the relationships, distinct in their religion and their actions and lifestyle, they instead went with the current. They, they intermarried. They took on other religions and mixed. It's kind of a syncretism thing going on. And so a, a Jewish person... Samaritans to them were anathema. And so, in spite of this, Philip goes. Verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So not only does Philip go in obedience to Jesus' words, but miracles happen. People begin to follow Jesus in, in Samaria of all places. And then we, we see Philip again towards the end of the chapter where an angel shows up. And let's, let's read that. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So that's what's interesting here is that Ethiopia, in Romans' writings at the time, was literally known as the ends of the earth because it was outside their open empire. It was outside of their control. It was beyond. It was the sticks. It was that place way beyond the horizon that nobody went to, the ends of the earth. So again, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in Acts 1. The Holy Spirit would come, give them power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, check. In Judea and Samaria, check. To the ends of the earth, check. And this Ethiopian official, he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, on a couple of occasions, speaks of the good news of God going where? To the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49.6 I will make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 62.11 The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to your daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. 
So in this chapter, we have two stories, and they're very similar in that they're a direct fulfillment of what Jesus had said would happen. And in both of these stories, people believe in Jesus, and they're baptized. You've got Samaritans, and then you have the Ethiopian official. Let's see how it happens. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and Simon himself believed and was baptized. And then after Philip explains the passage from Isaiah the Ethiopian is reading, the Ethiopian responds by being baptized. Verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And then we're told that after the Holy Spirit then comes upon this Ethiopian, Philip disappears suddenly, he's whisked away by the Holy Spirit, and the Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing. So two different men, Simon the Samaritan, this Ethiopian, they both believe, they're both baptized. But there's a massive game-changing difference, and the difference is their motive. The Ethiopian, on the one hand, it tells us he, he goes to Jerusalem to worship. He's not on a business trip. He's not on vacation. He's on a spiritual quest. He doesn't know Jesus. He hasn't heard of him in all likelihood. But he's heard something about this God of Israel. And he's seeking him. He's seeking the truth. And on the way home back to Ethiopia, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. What does that tell us about his motivation? He is desperate. He is hungry to get close to the one true God. He wants to know him. He wants to follow him. That's his motivation. And he would have had many obstacles to overcome in that quest. Because when he got to Jerusalem, he would have gone to the temple to worship, but he, would have, he wouldn't have gotten far. Because he was a foreigner. Because he was a eunuch, he would have been unclean. He would have been limited to the, the very farthest part out, the, limit, the farthest out courts of, of the synagogue. So it wouldn't have been very welcoming to him. But he doesn't allow a bad experience at church to stop his spiritual quest. And he gets a copy of Isaiah, and he's reading. He's, he's continuing to seek God. Now contrast that with the motives of Simon. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Then verse 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What does this tell us of Simon's motivation? Clearly doesn't get it. He's made a good decision to believe in Jesus and to be baptized, but he's doing it for the wrong reasons. So let's take a look at the backstory. Verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. So Simon... He was kind of an ancient times influencer. He's built a following, and he's, he's, people are, are following him because of the amazing things he can do. Magic tricks, sorcery, predictions, prophecies, all sorts of things, probably. 
And, and now Simon, after believing and being baptized, he sees what the power of the Holy Spirit can do. He wants some of that for himself so he can grow his influence, so he can get more likes, more followers, to, to impress people, to continue to, to make a living. In short, he sees the Holy Spirit. He sees following Jesus as a, as a business opportunity, a chance to win friends, influence people, to line his pockets. And his request to Peter and John reveals his motive, which is selfishness and greed. He wants to use God to further his own agenda. So let's do a comparison. The Ethiopian follows God, follows Jesus because he wants to enjoy a personal relationship with God. Simon, well, Simon decides to follow Jesus in order to advance his career. The Ethiopian earnestly seeks God, and when God reveals himself, he gives up his agenda, and he leaves rejoicing. Simon seeks God to further his own agenda, to grow his personal power, to increase his treasury. You see, why we follow Jesus is crucial, because our motives reveal the condition of our hearts. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you serve God? You know, motives are tricky and slippery things. And it's easy to rationalize and to justify, to overlook or ignore what's behind our decisions and our actions. It's important, it's crucial that our motives to follow Jesus are like the Ethiopian. Because look at Peter's response to Simon and his attempt to to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. That's pretty, pretty harsh. Why not sort of a different approach? Hey, this is awesome. You want to follow Jesus. You prayed the prayer and you got baptized, um, but you're clearly a work in progress. Uh, I think you're missing the point here. Uh, Let's get you into the discipleship program. Let's work with you. Why so harsh? Because Simon's heart condition has not changed. It's been revealed. And the only way his heart will be changed is through true repentance and the Holy Spirit's transformation of his life. So let's bring it home. you got two men here, Ethiopian and this Simon, a Samaritan. They're both exposed to the great things of God. Both hear the good news of Jesus' death, his life, death, and resurrection. They both believe and they are both baptized, good choices. But one's heart's desire is to know God. No price is too great for him to pay to know God, to love God, to serve God. He leaves rejoicing. But Simon, his attitude is, I want to use God. I want him to advance my agenda. I want him to serve my desires. So it's gut check time for us. We need to ask ourselves, is our faith about what I want, what I can get out of it, what God can do for me? Or is it about Jesus, about what I can do for him? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you serve God? Jesus certainly thought we should ask that question. In Luke 14, 25, there are large crowds following Jesus. 
And I think he suspects their motives, and so he gives them a gut check, and he says, paraphrasing, if you don't love me more than your family, way, way, way more than your family, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus also said in Matthew 14, if you want to be my disciple, you must what? Take up your cross and follow me. And what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So is your faith about what God can do for you, or is your faith about what you can do for him? If all God gives you in life is himself, is that enough? If not, you might want to check your motives. It might be good, after hearing this story, for all of us to check our motives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you tell us the truth. You tell us the truth about who you are. You tell us the truth about who we are. You tell us the truth about our need for you and and the condition of the world. Lord, we we come to you this morning and we, we confess that our motives are not always pure. We know, Lord, as Jeremiah said, that who can understand the heart? Our motives are so difficult to discern sometimes. We don't always know why we do what we do. So, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do, reveal to us the areas where we are following you and serving you for the wrong reasons. Lord, help us to grow in our commitment to you, our love for you, Lord, that our motives for following you would be more and more like that of the Ethiopian, desperate and hungry to know you, seeking you no matter the cost, and when in following you with great joy. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.